Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. If you see yourself as a perfectionist, stay tuned as we look at how to get your perfectionism to work for you and not against you. Our guest is psychotherapist Catherine Morgan Schaffler, who is a former on-site therapist at Google and the author of a great new book called The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. Catherine, we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Why did you decide to write the book? I mean, I think it's a fantastic topic, but what made you think, hey, this information needs to be out there in the world? I'm obsessed with the topic, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. You and me both. Um, You know, so many answers to that question, but a couple jump out at me. Primarily, I think this book chose me and I really... I'm a therapist. I have a a minor in teaching and education. And I thought like, this is the last thing I really thought I would do is write a book, but I had to. And someone told me along the process of writing this book that you write the books you most, you most need yourself. And so I think what happened was I worked with a lot of perfectionists and noticed a lot of patterns and I'm a perfectionist myself And I just had so many more questions than answers, like 100,000% more questions than answers. And I just, this book is my attempt to just dent the beginning of answering so much about perfectionism that I don't think our culture understands at all. You write that you've been asking yourself for a long time, what do people mean when they say that they're perfectionists? So how have you come to define it? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the colloquial definition of a perfectionist is someone who wants all things to be perfect at all times. Like I want the weather to be perfect and the way I look to be perfect and my, you know, work to be executed perfectly. And what I discovered is that's just not true. It's too simplistic and reductive. And I define perfectionism in a much broader way. And to me, a perfectionist is somebody who notices the difference between the reality plunked down in our labs and this ideal, right? We have this incredible cognitive capacity to imagine things that aren't actually happening around us, right? Unique to our species. And so you can see your your reality, but you can also simultaneously see this ideal version of it. And a perfectionist, by my definition, is anybody that more often than not sees that gap and longs to bridge it and not just longs to bridge the gap, but feels actively compelled to do so. There's a compulsory active quality in perfectionism that just cannot be shut off. But if we know that things can't be perfect all the time, 
why are we disappointed when the, when they aren't? I mean, a part of us knows it's it's not going to be perfect. I'm not going to get an A on every test and and you know conquer everything that I want to do perfectly. Yeah. Well, I I have two answers to that question, and the first is that disappointment is natural, right? And so this idea that we can kind of hack our lives and our emotional systems to inoculate ourselves from feeling disappointment or anything else is impossible. And so part of the reason why we feel disappointment is because we are human beings and disappointment is a natural experience of being a human being. And, um, and the other, well, I guess we could get into that, that later. Cause the, the other, the other answer to the question is like an on ramp to a whole other <laughs> side, of the, <laughs> side of the topic. Um, but yeah, I think the reason that we still, what I was going to say was the biggest discovery that I made in writing this book was that perfectionists aren't actually seeking flawlessness. They're seeking wholeness. And if you look at the word perfection, the Latin root of that word comes from per completely and facere done right? So when we describe something as perfect, we're not saying this is a flawless thing. We're saying this is something that is completely done. It exists in a state of completion, wholeness, perfection. When we say something's perfect, what we mean is that you we can't add one more thing to this to make it better. And the reason that is, is because you can't add to something that's already whole. So we use, we use completeness to emphasize I mean, excuse me, we use perfect to emphasize completeness all the time. Like when we say somebody's a, a complete stranger, for example, we're not saying there is a flawless stranger. We're, oh, we're saying yeah, like, yeah, yeah. This, this person's a total stranger to me. And so I think once you understand that what you're looking for as a perfectionist isn't flawlessness, it's a sense of wholeness that changes everything about the way that you view your perfectionism and the world around you. And it enables such a more empowering position because the wholeness that you're seeking is coming from inside you. And my book is about letting go of power. I mean, letting go of control and accessing the power to, to connect. It's a, it's a book about connection to access the power to connect to your wholeness, which is what you, you are trying to do every time you're trying to quote unquote, perfect something. Interesting. And you say that the eradication approach to perfectionism doesn't work because you are trying to, I guess, achieve that, that balance or that wholeness and view that perfectionism as a strength. Yes. I mean, this is something that drives me nuts about the way perfectionism is treated in our culture, um, which is essentially that we're trying to play whack-a-mole with this and say, let's figure out how to not be perfectionists. And Perfectionism is really interesting because first of all, it's context dependent and very fluid. So you might not be a perfectionist at all at work, but you might come home and your perfectionism may play out interpersonally and you want to be the perfect mom or you want to be the perfect you know, daughter or partner, or you want to have this perfect connection with yourself or your God or whatever it is. And so there are so many iterations of perfectionism. I talk about five of them in the book. Um, but also 
when someone says I'm a perfectionist, that is an enduring identity marker, meaning people who relate to being perfectionists typically relate to that identity throughout their entire lives. So telling someone advice, like, you know, just don't sweat the small stuff, just like figure out how to not, not, um, be so focused on this, just let it go. And all of this generic advice that perfectionists get all the time. It's like telling a romantic, just don't believe in love as much. Okay. Just be like (laughs) a little more practical or telling an activist, like just it's okay to care. Just don't care that much. Just don't care to the point where like you make your activism central to your personhood. And it's like, you can't do that with those core identities because the person experiencing that perfectionism is like, but this is part of who I am. And I don't believe in eradication as an approach to healing. In fact, I think it's the opposite of healing. I take an approach based on integration of not how do we get rid of this thing, but how do we incorporate this thing into the broader landscape of who you are without allowing it to eclipse all the other stuff that's there? Because it's not the only part of who you are and without letting it just run the whole damn show. You touched on the fact that there are five different types of perfectionists. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of those five types? Sure. So there are intense perfectionists. And let me just say there's pros and cons to each type of perfection, each type of uh, perfectionist and intense perfectionists are like um, the, the public persona of Gordon Ramsay and Steve Jobs, Anna Wintour. These are like the intense perfectionists. So they're, they're effortlessly direct. They maintain razor sharp focus on achieving the goal. So it's a, if you want something done, give it to an intense perfectionist. The cons of this, um, the cons of this is that their standards can go from high to impossible and they can be really punitive with themselves and people around them when they don't achieve the outcome or they achieve the outcome in a different way than they were expecting, like at a different time or in a different manner. Um, classic perfectionists are, I think, the um, archetype of what we think of perfectionists, buttoned up, preppy, you know, they're highly reliable. They they add structure to every situation that they're in. But on the con side, this type of perfectionism can be experienced as somewhat robotic and transactional. And so sometimes classic perfectionists can suffer interpersonally because they're not able to um, connect in ways that may be easier for other types of perfectionists to connect in because things like classic perfectionists don't, don't really encourage like collaboration. It's like, just let me do it. I know how to do it. I can, I can do it. So, you know, and team building and all this stuff that's sort of like very ripe for relationship building. Then there's messy perfectionists and messy perfectionists are just start happy. Like they can start anything. They easily brush through the anxiety of new beginnings and they're very sort of, they romanticize the perfection of the start of things. But when they hit that inevitable tedium where you're like, yeah, I'm so excited to start my business. This is what it's going to be called. And this is my mission. What do you mean I have to like file a PLLC? Like, what? no, I'm not. And they just like drop out because the the middle of the process can't be as perfect as the beginning. 
And the counterpart to messy perfectionists are procrastinator perfectionists who want the conditions to be perfect before they start. So on the pro side, procrastinator perfectionists, they're not impulsive. They're very thoughtful people. They have a 360 degree angle on everything, risk management, all that stuff. Um, but they need a lot of help and support in launching because the conditions are never perfect to start, you know? Um, and then finally there's Parisian perfectionists and that is perfectionism that manifests interpersonally. So Parisian perfectionists, the simple way to say it is they want to be perfectly liked, but on a deeper level, they want to also perfectly like others. They want to have perfect connection and Parisian perfectionists are real genuine connectors. They care about others. They're warm. They're inclusive. They're all the things. Um, but when their perfectionism in it isn't managed well, it predictably goes into overdrive with people pleasing and sacrificing their own sense of self and needs in order to try to accommodate others for the sake of relationship building when actually it's relationship destroying. Interesting. And I'm wondering what the differences are between how society views male perfectionists versus female perfectionists. I'm so glad you asked that question. It's it's stunning <laughs> to me how much of a gendered construct this is and how nobody talks about that. I mean, to use the examples we brought up before, when you look at Anna Wintour and her level of focus and professionalism and just excellence in execution of all of these things um, and compare that with someone like Gordon Ramsay's, again, public personas. I don't, I don't know these people, um, but one is exalted such that he has become a total media mogul and the other is cast as the devil in Prada. And interestingly, when you look at perfectionists like Martha Stewart or Marie Kondo, we notice that they are embraced and syndicated in our culture. And I don't think it's a coincidence that their perfectionism is based on archetypal homemaker interests. So mm -hmm. if you look at Martha Stewart's company, it is about like paint palettes that pop and weddings and social gatherings and and brunch in a pinch for 12 of your friends. And <laughs> it's like, I love, I love all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Um, obviously Marie Kondo's whole platform is about, you know, tidying up on a superficial level. And I also love her work. I think it's great. I think it's per perfectionism on parade, but the thing is like, nobody's telling these perfectionists that they need to find balance quote unquote, and nobody's telling them to, relax their standards. And, you know, perfectionism, basically to answer your question is prized and exalted when it's expressed in domains that are typically, um, not in competition for anything men are trying to do. Serena Williams, a self-proclaimed perfectionist, she is has had to suffer publicly so much through penalties that I use in the book as an, as examples, and um, because she's not talking about paint palettes that pop, you know, her focus and drive is expressed assertively, and she she doesn't hide her ambition. You know, she's really proud of it, and she's really vocal about it, and she 
brings attention to herself, not just with what she does and how well she plays, but even with what she wears. And, you know, people are put off by that for a reason. And I talk about that reason in chapter three, which is that, you know, perfectionists are told to find balance instead of being perfectionists. And it's a message that is given to women so much more than men. I I almost want to say exclusively to women. In reading your book, I was struck by something that hit me growing up and throughout my adult years. And that was, it seemed like society was pushing women more to be perfectionists than men, because it was, it was thought that as a woman, you had to be better. You had to work harder than men to be accepted in the workplace. And I'm thinking back in like the seventies and and the eighties that to have a seat at the table, you better be better than the guys are. So it it seems to me that society has just sort of sent that message to, to women in a way that maybe they didn't send it to men. Yeah. I think anybody who is part of any kind of oppressed group is getting a very dangerous mixed message, which is you can never be good at as good as the the dominant group. And also you better, you know, work your ass off and try your best to, to compete anyway. So we're asking people to hold, you know, a double-edged sword without a handle when we do that. And the sociocultural impacts of perfectionism and the kind that you're talking about is, has a name and it's had a name for, you know, the past few decades, but again, we don't talk about it. Um, socially prescribed perfectionism. And I think there are a lot of connections between this impossible pressure um, that not just women, but a lot of people of color, a lot of like anybody who is having the experience that I'm an outsider coming in to this group. Um, there's so much prismatic pressure involved in that because of that mixed message of you can never be perfect, but you should always try. Right. And so I get yeah. into that in, in the book to that sociocultural component. Yeah. How old are women when they start showing signs of being perfectionists and what advice would you have for parents of young girls to make sure that that perfectionism manifests in, in the right way? So it depends how you define perfectionists and perfectionism. Um, by my definition, and and by the first by the person who first introduced perfectionism into psychological literature, Dr. Alfred Adler, you know, he framed perfectionism as this innate natural human impulse, and it, it's a really beautiful way that he conceptualized it. And he was a socialist, so a lot of his ideas weren't really. Um, absorbed into the culture. Um, But he basically said like perfectionism, that need to try to reach the ideal is about all of us trying to connect best with each other. And that if every single person was clean, fed, free, loved, whatever, that's when our perfectionistic impulses would stop. And so, you know, I think perfectionism showing up in kids and in you know emerging adolescence and into adulthood is not a bad thing as long as there's a lot of conscientiousness around 
what are the values driving whatever ideal you're seeking, right? And so if the value is a culturally sanctioned value, which is I should be skinny and look, you know, pleasing to people and particularly men all the time, then that's obviously not healthy, you know? And so I think perfectionism or not, parents can help their kids be themselves in the world by talking about what they value as people and saying, you know, inviting conversation. Do you agree with me? What do you value? No two people are exactly the same. So you must value a couple of other things that I don't. And I have a whole list of values in the book. And I think that the one of the best gifts you can give yourself and your kids is to have these conversations with yourself and your kids. I was really struck by one of the points that you make in the book where you say, we spend our lives confronted by two rotating fears. I'll never get what I want and I'll lose what I have. What's Mm -hmm. wrong with those fears? I mean, don't they help to sort of push us to achieve our ambitions? Nothing's wrong with them. What's when dysfunction comes in is when you allow those fears to dictate your decision-making because then you're giving all your power to the fear. And again, fear, disappointment, grief, all natural part of the human experience. But when you allow those things to just be the only sign on the marquee of your mind, you're going to get in trouble because we don't like to be afraid. And when you feel afraid, what you do is you double down on control and That's not a good strategy for multiple reasons, but mostly because control is illusory. It's not real, you know, and you can't fully be yourself when you're trying to control stuff because there's a degree of spontaneity um, in expressing new parts of who you are in listening to things that you might not have expected other people to say in kind of saying yes to your life that just gets stamped out when you're following a plan all the time. And I don't believe in itinerary based existence when that itinerary is like the only rubric you follow, you know, you're just like become a one dimensional version of yourself. When I want, I want to see the 3d version or like better yet, show me the 4d or 5d or what I don't even know exists. Like just bring it all out, you know? I found that when I took the quiz, I really identified actually with quite a few of the types I could, I could find really a little bit in every type that, that, that felt like me. And I thought one of the best things that you said, and I wrote it down was the quote, think of who you were five years ago and how much you've grown since then. If you could go back in time and transplant your brain and all that you've learned into the five years ago version of you, it would blow your five years ago mind. What used to be your ceiling is now your floor. I like that just, I love that that blew my mind. And I thought, wow, I can be a little easier on myself as a perfectionist. And you know what, if I had, if that five years ago brain could have been transplanted back then, that would have maybe been perfectionism to me. Maybe what I have achieved now would have been perfectionism. Yeah. I love that you read that. Thank you. And yeah, I think, you know, like I said, at the top of the conversation, like we write the books we most need, like I wrote that because I need to remind myself that, you know, maintenance is a triumph, which is a mantra I discuss in the book. And that 
you know, this is the thing about being ambitious, which you cannot be a perfectionist without being an ambitious person. And the ambitious person will always, always see so much more in front of them than behind them. And that's not because they don't give themselves credit for this stuff that's behind them. It's just because that's what makes you ambitious. You're like, the ambitious person walks around life feeling like, oh, I'm just getting started. You know, I hear people in their 70s, 80s say that, you know, it's like, and I love that. I love the energy of the perfectionist who's like (laughs) perpetually just getting started again. But the inevitable but is that if you don't sometimes remind yourself that, you know what, it's great that you feel like you're just getting started, but you're not. You've been working for so long in such incredible ways. And if you you got to sometimes, or, or I'll just speak for myself, I have to sometimes really take the time to acknowledge what I've done and how much it's mattered to me and how proud of myself I am. And it sounds kind of embarrassing to say that because it's like, it just feels like we should somehow automatically know these things, but I don't automatically know them unless I consciously invite them forward. Yeah, I agree. And I know you also actively or urge perfectionists to actively invite joy into their lives. Mm -hmm. Why is that important and how do you do it? To me, that is the most important. I think joy is really the, the cardinal marker of someone who is living in a place of mental wellness. And it's so important because we are trained and taught to restrict joy in the name of responsibility and discipline. And it's not, it's just so profoundly unnecessary. And I, what I see a lot is people saying, I'll, I'll give myself permission to enjoy that as soon as this busy project is over, as soon as it's Saturday, as soon as I lost 10 pounds, as soon as I da, 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 da. And it's like, again, if you're ambitious, that as soon as list is not going to be a list. It's going to be a scroll. You're never going to finish it. You're not supposed to ever be able to finish it. That's not the point. Ideals are not meant to be achieved. They are only meant to inspire. That's the reason ideals exist. They're not, you know, on on a checklist that you can ever finish, right? They're just meant to give you this vision to drive and strive towards. And if you don't feel joy, it's like, I think we've just collectively repressed the fact that you know, you blink and that's life. Mm -hmm. And it's not morbid to me. I think about death in a really healthy, beautiful way all the time, because I don't know, I've always had such an acute sense of how delicate we are as human beings. We're just like, anything could smush us at any time, really. Yeah. yeah. So really anytime Um, we have is great, right? Anytime we have is great. A hundred percent. And like, to me, every day that you're alive is like, for me, it's like opening the door and you just at, at your doorstep is a bag of like, I don't care about money in, in this way, but I'm just using it as an example um, for illustrative purposes. It's like every day there's just this bag of $10,000 and you're like, oh, for me, <laughs> I get this. I, I looking like, around like, I like thinking about life that way. That's great. It is that way, and like the thing is, and so like you take the bag, and to me, joy is about being like, I'm gonna spend this because I don't know if I'm gonna have this bag tomorrow. And then it's like you get the next day and the next day, and soon 
I get it. Initially, maybe you're like, I'm not spending this. I need to save it. But like, how many days are you going to wake up to a bag of $10,000 and continue to have the approach of like, I'll use it when I'll use it when I feel safe enough to do it. Because one of the days you're going to wake up and the bag is not going to be there. And to me, that is what my relationship with joy is like. It's like, I got this thing. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or even at like four o'clock today. I am going to go, quote unquote, blow all this money on whatever brings me true, real pleasure. And to me, that is how you honor your life and the people around you and your relationships and your values. You, you know, you spend your energy on it and spending your energy on it looks like allowing yourself to be joyful. So I dedicated a whole chapter in the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, the last chapter on how to invite joy in. And I don't know if you have time to answer the question, you know, for the second part of the question of like how to do that. Of course, go ahead, yes. um, But I think basically the way that you invite joy in was surprising to me. And this this is something a lot of my clients taught me, which is um, we don't allow ourselves to feel joy because we're controlling a lot and we're trying to be responsible. And the way in through joy is not discipline, it's pleasure. And pleasure is a loaded word for a lot of people and particularly women. It feels hedonic and indulgent and dangerous. And I'm not just talking about sexual pleasure, though that's a part of it too, but primarily I'm talking about like simple pleasures. And the way that I distinguish between pleasure and immediate gratification is when you think about something that brings you pleasure, it's pleasurable to anticipate, it's pleasurable to enjoy in the moment, and it's pleasurable after the fact. Whereas when things bring you immediate gratification and like dopamine hits, you might have a little anxiety thinking about it. Like, oh, I hope I don't, I hope I don't like indulge too much at the thing that I'm doing tonight that, you know, and then during the immediate gratification, it's great. It's, it feels a lot like pleasure, but then after when it's immediate gratification, you might feel like, oh, I like overdid it or I did too much, or you have like some kind of, you know, static feel like kind of like noise around it. And pleasure is just a joyful, simple satisfaction of like the pleasure of holding the door open for someone, the pleasure of taking a walk, the pleasure of like one of the, my favorite pleasures that I talk about in the book is like eating frozen yogurt in the sun, in the summer, walking around New York city, like such a pleasure for me. That's the best, right? And we don't allow ourselves totally. We don't allow ourselves to feel pleasure actually, because we don't trust ourselves Mm. and we don't trust ourselves for many reasons. We're not taught to trust ourselves, but we also don't trust ourselves because we haven't forgiven ourselves. And to me, that was like, in writing this book, I was like, oh, that's why. Because one question I've always had in my practice is, you know, the, you know how people always talk about the relationship between gratitude and joy? And it's like, well, if you want to boost your joy, just boost your gratitude. But I worked with so many people who who genuinely did feel grateful for a lot in their life and really worked to invite that gratitude forward and still felt locked out of joy. And then I realized like, oh, it's because if you haven't forgiven yourself, you don't allow yourself to feel pleasure and joy because you don't think you deserve to actually. 
And so I talk in the book about what forgiving yourself looks like, the considerations around it, that it's not a binary concept, that you don't need to be you know, super 100% proud of everything you've done before in your life, that we all make mistakes, that we all repeat mistakes, and that self-compassion and self-forgiveness are real resiliency building skills. They're not just like these amorphous words that, that basically sum up to just be extra nice to yourself, super polite to yourself. That's not what it is. They're actually steps to these things. And you can enact those steps and in doing so really commit to joy, like joyful living. Everyone, in my opinion, deserves to live joyfully. It's a birthright. You don't earn your way to joy or wholeness or dignity or connection. Like you can never do anything to lose your right to it. And so withholding it from a place of responsibility is so misguided and it's hurting you and it's hurting everyone around you because you can't be your full self when you um, are holding like resentment towards yourself. I totally agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. sense. I really, really love that answer. Um, At the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about the blessings of being a perfectionist that you had to learn the hard way and you'd like to share with our audience because many of them are perfectionists as well? Hmm. I love a good question. Um, Nobody told me that being a perfectionist could be a source of energy, inspiration, and joy. And how did you learn that? Just by talking with all of your patients over the years or what? I really, I learned that by really deep diving into what perfectionism is and understanding that there's no clinical definition of what it means to be a perfectionist or perfectionism. You know, it's like the wild, wild west in the research world about about this stuff. And we are, it is agreed upon in the infancy of our research. And so being able to say, well, I understand that some people view perfectionism in, you know, it's split in the book in maladaptive versus adaptive, but underneath that, like what else is there and how would I categorize it and organize it? And what patterns do have I noticed in the multiple contexts that I've worked in? And, you know, there's a through line and it's that again, perfectionists are seeking wholeness. They're not seeking flawlessness. Like that's what nobody told me. That's what I figured out. And that's what I wrote this book about. And Catherine, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet? So I am on Instagram at Catherine Morgan Schaffler. And my website is also my name. So CatherineMorganShaffler.com. And the book is The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. Well, Catherine, we thank you so very much for joining us. This has really been uh, very helpful, I think. For for us and and I hope for our (laughs) listeners as well. Thank you. This is really fun. I loved your question so much. Again, Catherine's book is called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.